five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. This is Chad Bear, and you're listening to My Alien Life. In uh, 1963, I was eight years old, and I was in my backyard, and we lived in the city, so, you know, in, in row houses, uh, so we had a small backyard, and I'm looking down, and I see this perfectly circular shadow move across my feet, and I immediately looked up, and when I did, about 50 feet over my head was this beautiful flying saucer. I mean, it was... It was breathtaking. It was uh, a really cool event. And, and, you know, it wasn't just a visual either. It's like when I looked up at it, the uh, sounds of the neighborhood, you know, women hanging up laundry, dogs, cats, cars, you know, kids, noisy place. Uh, there was a distinct auditory change. It was like I put my hands against my ears. Kind of, the sounds were kind of muffled. My Alien Life is recorded live from atop the Northern Rocky Mountains and is available on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, and everywhere fine podcasts are found. My website is at www.myalienlifepodcast.com. There you will find my email address, all previously recorded shows, and more. I am Cameron Brower. This is My Alien Life, and the podcast starts right now. Against my ears. Kind of, the sounds were kind of muffled. And I, I remember looking at it and being kind of puzzled why there wasn't an exhaust. You know, I put together model airplanes when I was a kid, so I had some idea of how, you know, things work to fly. And there were no rivets. There were no, it was just a sheet of shiny, like aluminum, polished aluminum or something. My guest tonight is a lawyer and former assistant attorney general, and in 1977, he became an unwilling participant to events that shaped his future in ways he never, ever would have imagined. Terry Lovelace is here. Thank you so much for joining me, sir, and welcome. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, welcome to Montana. I know you're down in Texas, and um, we're kind of living in a different world right now. Have you been um, at home most of the time, or have you been able to get out and enjoy some of the the peace and quiet of, of isolation on the streets, I guess. Well, you know what? Uh, it's almost business as usual here. Not quite. Uh, but uh, no, I, I haven't been out much. Uh, my backyard is about it. I, uh, uh, I have a healthy respect for the virus. So yeah, no. I do. yeah, I do too. And I, I made, I've been making a lot of excuses not to be out in my yard and, and making it look better and at least improving something out there but uh that that that's coming right up so um it, it's really hard to decide what to do on a day-to-day basis even when you have a lot of free time you know i don't even know what day it is anymore you know it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's i know i know I, i've heard that question or i've heard that that statement from a lot of people and it's pretty funny um so do you still get out and do a little running i know you were a runner 
You know, I don't, but I get out and walk. You know, I try to do a mile and a half a day. So uh, I have, uh, uh, in back of my property, there's uh, some trails and I can go back there, not see a soul, do a mile and a half and get back to the house. I used to, um, I used to run a lot. I had a little heart surgery back in uh, 2005. And um, ah. as an excuse, oh. two weeks later, I was out. And um, I, I probably ran every day and, and entered races and did all kinds of things for about 10 years and um, quit the racing part. But uh, I still try to try to move a little bit from time to time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I miss it. I miss running. So tell me this story. You were out. You were you weren't running, but you had a you knew of a, a spot on your leg that basically you had a numb spot. And prior to that feeling of numbness, you you didn't have any symptoms at all of, of any part of your leg being abnormal, correct? None, none. Just that spot that would go numb. Uh, like I say, about every every time I would hit the two mile mark in my run, I didn't run you know marathons. I ran you know three four miles a day, but I ran almost every day. And uh, man, like clockwork, that that spot would go numb right on my leg. I could take a pin and delineate the uh, the outline of it. It was about the size of a, a half dollar or a toonie, you know, and uh, it had, it was perfectly round. And I talked to a doctor about it and she said, that's ah, a histemic reaction probably from the stress of running. She said, I wouldn't worry about it, you know, so I didn't. Any other symptoms? Did you ever feel uh, muscle spasms or anything like that? Or did your, your, your running performance suffer because of it? No, I don't think so. Uh, you know, it's just something would happen, and I, I would anticipate it. I knew it was going to happen, and uh, it didn't interfere. It never interfered with my run. So, you know, interesting. Live with it, yeah. Yeah. So, what what was the event that led up to the uh, the the doctor's visit or the hospital visit? Oh my gosh! Uh, I retired from the state of Vermont uh, in January of 2012. And in October of that year, I, I, we, we moved uh, down to Dallas because this is where our children and grandchildren are. And uh, I got up one morning in October, October 25th, uh, 2012, and I, I couldn't put weight on my right leg. It wouldn't bear any weight. And uh, it was painful. And I told my wife, I got you know, to get an x-ray. So uh, I get all my medical care from the VA. So <laughs> she took me to the uh, emergency room. And uh, a couple hours later, uh, they x-rayed my leg. And, uh, you know, the lady was kind of, con- the, the technician was kind of confused. She came out, she took another set of x-rays. Then she came out, took a third set of x-rays. Then she asked me, she says, have you been in an automobile accident or suffer a shrapnel wound? Or I'm like, no, 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 I never left the States, you know, and, and not been in a car accident. And I never, never injured that leg other than skin knee as a kid. And she says, well, you have some very unusual foreign bodies in your leg. <laughs> and I said, oh, look, uh, can, I, can I see them? They're my x-rays. And, you know, and, uh, you, know you, you don't need a medical gr- degree to see them. And when I, when I saw the one of my right leg, uh, I recognized that spot above my knee, right where that thing sat, uh, as, as the, uh, the spot that would go numb. And, you know... The seeing those, and then and then below my knee, there's that like a floret pattern of um, like tic tac type things. 
So what <laughs> what was that? I mean, I noticed that on your website. Now I'll uh, put links, of course, to your website. But what what is that pattern to the right of your? I don't. I'm not sure what I'm looking at there. That's in the calf of my leg, uh, the calf of my right leg, uh, and it's a it's an arrangement. The radiologist uh, came down to look at my X-ray, and uh, he looked at my X-ray, and uh, he insisted on examining my knee. He he says you got to have a scar there. He says you know these things can't get under your skin and into your fascia and tissue like like this without there being a scar. And I said, Doc, I I don't have a scar. And he says, I'm oh, sure you do. You know, it, you probably just forgot. Whatever. He um, asked me to take off my pants, and he examined my knee. And he was stunned. He re- he was, you know, genuinely stunned. And I, I said, Well, doctor, how often is it you find a foreign body like this, and there not be a corresponding scar? And he said, Never. He said, I've been a radiologist 23 years. I've never seen this. And in regard to that florette pattern uh, in the calf muscle of my leg, he said that on, it's kind of odd the way he said it, he said, on x-ray film, I can tell that these things are the same density as bone tissue. And then he said, but I think not. And I'm like, what do you mean you think not? And he said, well, you know, number one, I've never seen, I've never seen uh, bone tissue sprout in the middle of a muscle before. And he said, I've certainly never seen it arrange itself in a, in a, in a symmetrical pattern like this. He said, that's just strange. He said, you have a very strange knee, my young man. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the other picture that I'm looking at is, is that implant, is it actually square? And those, those are wires running totally vertical yeah. up from that? Correct. About the size of a fingernail uh, wow. with two wires running vertically. You know, what I did was I, I took some some better pictures of it, and uh, I got a friend, a guy I went to law school with, who's a uh, works for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. Actually, he just retired, and they have on file the world's largest database of electronic equipment. I mean, they've got every transistor, resistor, every electrical component you can think of. They have cataloged, and they use that. That that came about after the Lockerbie Scotland plane went down right uh so they, they've got everything if it's made for electronics they've got a record of it a database and whatever was in my knee is not in their database so so you cross-reference that to size shape or um or all yeah. of the above all of the above yeah huh that's very very interesting um so what was your next step after that i mean obviously it's quite a shock to go to the go see see somebody a medical doctor and have him tell you that there's there's a piece of something in your leg we have no idea what it is how it got there what was your feeling then and 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 what was that like well you know um it was jarring it really was it was like a slap in the face i was stunned i mean i it was it was validation for what i knew i mean the thought that these things put their hands on me back in 1977 just brought back a whole lot of bad memories. And, uh, you know, 1977, this whole abduction event was, you know, I mean, a huge event in my life. I mean, I tend to, I think that tend to think of my life pre-1977, you know, as maybe innocent and, 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 uh, childlike maybe. And man, I, I left Devil's Den State Park as an adult, an adult. 
Okay. So in, in 1977, you were 22 years old and you were a staff sergeant with the United States Air Force. Um, what, what was your function then? What was your job? And, and um, was it related in any way to the, uh, the uh, AFOSI or, or what were you doing back then? Actually, I was an enlisted guy. Um, I, I went in the military to get the GI Bill so I could go, you know, get a college education. Uh, I served as a medic and an EMT. And I worked at Whiteman Air Force Base. I worked at the emergency room there. Uh, and I worked several years with my friend, Toby. Uh, and we worked the night shift, 11 p.m. to 8 a.m. And if there was, you know, a car accident, a heart attack, a plane crash, uh, you know, we we were first responders. And... Uh, we worked the night shift. I, you know, I worked the night shift. I was taking some classes, and it just fit my schedule really well. And my friend Toby wanted to work the night shift because he was just, I mean, ate up with the idea of looking at the night sky. I mean, he knew all the all the all the uh, constellations. He could he could tell me when a satellite was about to come over, and there weren't that many satellites up there in 1977. No, no. You know, I have I have. Uh several podcasts and I mentioned that that exact same thing because you know now you can go look at the night sky and see satellites non-stop you can um, go to website sites that'll tell you exactly where to look and when um, but back then you know you may see one or two um, in a night and I'm talking like if if my friends and I slept outside when I was a kid you know for for four hours you'd look up and maybe see two satellites when when now it's hard not to see a satellite it, it is yes yeah so, yeah, you know what? I, I wish that I'd had time to connect with Toby and find out where his fascination with the night sky came from. Um, you know, my guess would be that uh, he probably had some kind of childhood misadventure like I had. Do you think anybody, so what was the youngest recollection do you have that you have of, of some, some unnamed event that um, you, you can or cannot describe um, something real strange that happened as a kid? Did you have any? I, I did. I did. Um, in uh, 1963, I was eight years old, and I was in my backyard, and I'm playing with this. I, an uncle gave me an adult bow and arrow set. You know, I mean, like you could hunt with it. You know, not not anything I give my kids. You know, <laughs> at eight years old. But, uh, and we lived in the city, so you know, in, in row houses. Uh, so we had a small backyard, I had a bale of hay set up, and I'm shooting these arrows into this bale of hay. And I'm looking down, and I'm loading an arrow into the notch of the, the string and uh, the notch of the bow, and I see this perfectly circular shadow move across my feet. And I immediately looked up, and when I did, about 50 feet over my head was this beautiful flying saucer. I mean, it was it was breathtaking. It was uh, a really cool event. And it, you know, it wasn't just a visual either. It's like when I looked up at it, the, um, sounds of the neighborhood, you know, women hanging up laundry, dogs, cats, cars, you know, kids, noisy place. Uh, there was a distinct auditory change. It was like, I put my hands against my ears, kind of, the sounds were kind of muffled. And I, I remember looking at it and being kind of puzzled why there wasn't an exhaust. You know, I put together model airplanes when I was a kid, so I had some idea of how 
you know, things work to fly. And there were no rivets. There were no, it was just a sheet of shiny, like aluminum, polished aluminum or something. Um, but it was breathtaking. I thought, you know, I, I thought the word sexy really wasn't in my vocabulary at eight. I forget the word I used, but um, it was like, like a, it was cool in a way like a new Alfa Romero is on a showroom floor. You know, if that makes sense. Any idea how big this was? Maybe 30, 40 feet. Wow. Big. Yeah. Big. But relatively short uh, encounter, I think. I didn't have a watch, watch on. Yeah, you know, I had this strange uh, compulsion to lie down on the grass and look up at it, thinking I could get a better view. But, you know, that makes no sense. It really doesn't. And, uh, so basically it put you at ease, but did you have any feeling of like numbness or, or um, indifference to it? Or was there a curiosity and a, any, any pleasurable feeling associated with it? Curiosity and excitement. Wow. Yeah, it, it, was, uh, it was really a moment, you know, and, and I watched the thing and, um, you know, it wobbled in the breeze just a bit. And it kind of listed the starboard, so at an angle it would clear the power lines and shot off. I mean, like zero to 500 miles an hour, and it's gone. You know, and I'm screaming, Mom! You know, she comes running. She thinks I shot somebody in the head with an arrow or something. You know, she comes out, checks me for blood, sees me on the ground. And I said, Mom, did you see it? It was really cool. Did you see it, Mom? And she's like, you know, what are you talking about? I'm Mom, I saw a flying saucer. You know, she's like, no, you can't say that. You don't say that. You know, she dragged me in the house and she said, you know, Tara, you saw a jet. You did not see a flying saucer. And you can't tell people you saw a flying saucer because they'll think there's something wrong with you. They'll think there's something wrong with us, you know. Um, different time, 1963. I still think, though, back in 1963, a kid could get away with you know, seeing a flying saucer to before the age of like 16. Um, do you think that uh, she was worried um, about neighbors knowing, or do you think that possibly there was a connection and maybe the parents had experiences themselves? I, I think my parents had experiences, uh, particularly my father. I don't know about my mother, but my father for sure. Um, he was just, uh, you know, anytime anything came on the television, a radio regarding a, a, a UFO, he would just tune into it and uh, ate it up. And I asked him, I said, damn, where do those things come from? And he says, don't worry about it. That's, that's from the Russians. That's from the, the Soviet Union. I'm like, oh, okay. You know, and you know, I, I was a pretty smart kid, even at eight. And I'm thinking, you know, then why doesn't it say CCCP on that? You know, why is it, hmm. why is it uh, just this circular perfect disc? It makes no sense. So, but he gave me the slow talk. He's my mom, you know, he says, look, you can't, you can't go telling people you saw flying saucer. They'll think you're crazy. And uh, so I, I didn't, I didn't, I mean, my family knew that I saw this thing and, uh, I hope that they believed me. You know, I'm not sure. I mean, I wasn't the kind of kid to make stuff up. You know, I was a pretty straight kid. I often look back, you know, when I was, <clears throat> excuse me, when I was that age and, and um, the experiences that I had, I often wondered, and I had a, sort of the same reaction with my parents. You know, I I told my mother about one of the incidents and what I saw. And 
um, she seemed to completely steer me into a totally different direction and, and one that I wouldn't even have expected. So when I thought about that, you know, I thought, well, maybe she's worried about me. Maybe she's worried I'm crazy. Maybe she's been through the same thing and doesn't want me to worry about that. And then I kind of, I kind of came to this conclusion that maybe she had an experience and um, didn't want me to, to worry about it because she had some insight and maybe knew a lot more about that than I did. But, you know, I thought, well, maybe when I'm older, I'll figure that out and I'll have more experiences and I'll know more. But, uh, um, I don't think I know much more. So I, I, you know, I still wonder and never, ever had that conversation again. I probably still could, but, um, there's, there's something about that mystery that that's attractive to me. So I don't, I don't go there. So, yeah. Yeah. How can I ask how old you were? Um, so when first, first thing that I really noticed when I, you know, I had my tonsils out when I had an experience when I was maybe five ish, and then a couple experiences like uh, seven and eight years old, um, like 11 years old. And then, of course, there's a biggie at like 16 and uh, 20-ish. And so, you know, quite quite frequently. And I, I don't know if you, you probably haven't listened to my podcast, but I just had, um, last night I had two friends, my two of my best friends from high school, my very best friends, and we were... Um, experience something pretty amazing together at the same time that they have absolutely no memory of. So we got together and we talked about that for the first time in, you know, 30 some years. That's not unusual. I hear. Yeah, it's really, you know, I have a very vivid memory, but they, but they absolutely have none. And, you know, um, and we had never talked about it. We, I think they had an idea that something unusual happened because uh, part of the evening, they don't have any memory of it all. You know, we, we messed around, drove around and then, you know, getting home and, and later on in the night, they have no recollection whatsoever. Yeah. You know, what was, was, was odd was when I published my book in 2018, uh, I, uh, I gave a copy to my sister and, uh, she's 76. And I said, you know, why don't you read this? And she's like, no, I don't want to read that. And I'm like, well, you know, I talk about, uh, you know, when I was eight and all this stuff. And she was visibly upset, you know. And she says, you know, um, you know, I, I do remember when there were funny lights coming through the windows and sometimes you wouldn't be in bed. And I, we felt bad we couldn't be of more help to you. Because um, I had two sisters right across the hall from my bedroom. Uh, and then she said, that's all. That's all. I don't want to talk about this. Right. And... Uh, I, I found out that's not that's not uncommon. I put a uh, email address in the back of my book and said, "Look, I'm not a doctor or a therapist, but you know, if you if you've had an experience and want to share it with me, I'd be happy to uh, talk to you about it." Well, in 25 months, I've received 1,283 emails as of this morning. Wow! And I had several. I mean, a couple hundred. Uh, where people tell me that they, they witnessed something with a family member or close friends. And when the event was over, it was like, well, okay, that's it. And, and they continued on like nothing happened. And there was never any debriefing or, or, uh, or did you see that or nothing of the sorts. Amazing. You know, I have, I have a younger brother who, um, he, you know, I actually thought it'd be a great idea to have the two friends on and, um, I thought it would be cool to have my, my younger brother who will talk about anything except 
now he doesn't really want to talk about this. So um, he's tell me that uh, he remembers as a little kid, you know, very little, maybe as, as young as the age of three, these, these little gray guys with big eyes used to take him out of bed and then bring him outside and then just leave him out in the yard and then he'd be locked outside and he'd have to bang on the door to get back in the house. I do recall once that he was outside, you know, in the middle of the night banging on the door. And um, so, you know, um, I would have liked to hear that and maybe I will, but, uh, you know, I don't think it's one of those things you want to really push because um, people kind of do that in their own time. And, and, you know, I think, you know, with your sister, that's to me that makes me wonder what kind of a time that she had or what memories she had, because honestly, um, my, my memories aren't that great and I don't really want to think about it um, for the most part, but uh, um, a lot of it was terrifying. So I'm wondering if, you know, some people have in the same family have good experiences and other bad. And if that is true, I'm wondering why that is. You know, I, I think they have some kind of um, control over us as far as uh, our memory, our recollection. Uh, I think that they can wire our brains to feel guilty and, 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 you know, I, I didn't want to talk about it until, you know, I had that x-ray that, that was kind of uh kind of a watershed moment. Um, and, you know, I was retired. I mean, I could never have come out when, when I was a civil servant and, and published this or told the story. Um, or even when I was in private practice, I mean, I'd have been, you know, I, I wouldn't, it wouldn't have went well. So, but you know, now I'm retired. I don't care. Um, and you know, it was surprising. Some of my friends were supportive, uh, in the legal community. Um, and some were not, you know, some were like, have you lost your mind? What are you, what are you talking about? Right. Uh, and you, I found out who my friends were, you know, pretty quickly. Isn't it interesting though, that some people just jump on it and they embrace it, you know? And, but, but then again, you don't know why, you know, it's not like they, um, they just come out and say they're a believer or they come out and say the same thing happened to them. But, um, some people just are really interested in it. It doesn't change a thing. Like my two buddies. I mean, um, you know, after we had the, the conversation, put it on tape, they really didn't have anything else to ask me, you know? And I thought there'd be loads and loads of questions and, and there weren't. And, um, yeah. but you know, they were totally accepting and I know they believe it 100%. And, um, but it just doesn't seem like they're interested in going beyond that. And, you know, I don't, I don't, um, wrong them for that in, in any stretch. But, um, I think that it seems to me that the, everybody has kind of a different experience. I'm wondering if they have different roles or if it's just, if it's our own personality that's so deep that that comes out only in those cases. That's a good question. I, I, I don't know. I'd like to know, uh, you know, it's, um, it's liberating to come out and talk about it. Uh, it's been very cathartic to have written it all down and, and told people about it. Uh, you know, I did have other childhood experiences, but they were strange. They weren't seeing flying saucers. I had these like two foot tall monkeys. And I know this sounds crazy, uh, but they looked just like circus monkeys. And they would come into my room every uh, once a week or come sometimes four or five times in a week. And, um, so, you know, sometimes I went with them voluntarily 
the one closest to my head would always hold out this monkey paw in my direction and uh, say, Terry, why don't you come with us? We'll bring you back home. We'll, we'll have fun. And I think sometimes I went and sometimes I didn't. One of the nightmares that I've had for 40 years that, that's kind of disturbing is um, I'm a kid again and I'm lying in bed and they're there. And uh, the monkey closest to my head reaches out, only it's not a monkey's paw. It's these four long, ugly fingers. And for some reason, that just that just flips me out. And I'm awake and I got to turn a light on and, um, you know, sometimes get up and watch TV because I'm not going to be going back right back to sleep after that. You know, I had a conversation with several people and I kind of threw this at them. Um, in my experience, you know, I saw I saw these grays showing my best friends objects, and um, I knew that they were being shown these objects because these these aliens had no idea or no understanding why we as people had so many possessions, you know, that that we cherish. You know, every kid has toys, and and every adult has their toys, and we have all these things, whereas you know, you have this, this, this civilization in the sky that they don't own anything individually, you know, and, and basically my, it was my impression that their number one reason for being and doing what they do is, is a perpetuation of their species. So to me, I always wonder, you know, with the monkeys and things like in situations like that, if it was that was the purpose to show you something different and see your reaction, because yes, they they uh, they they see people with actual monkeys. They see monkeys, and they they maybe don't see a difference between us and monkeys, but maybe they want to see if we interact or or who knows. I mean, it's just um, there. There's so such a little understanding of what we do from them. I believe that. Nothing would surprise me, Terry. Well, you know, in these um, letters that I've got, these emails that I've received, and I've corresponded with some of these people. I've talked to some of them by phone. Um, people told me they've seen owls and orbs of light and raccoons and no monkeys. But uh, I think these things, even Disney characters, one lady said she saw Disney characters in her room um, when she was a little child. I think they take on a benign appearance. So they don't scare the kid to death, you know, and uh, I think that's what they do. I think they have the ability to do that. Yeah, because I, I do think, you know, they are they are frightening. And if you see, a, you know, like me waking up with a with a there's a six foot alien standing at the foot of my bed and, and we look at each other for the next three hours. Um, to me, I wonder what that purpose would serve and, and why that happened and, and why didn't I have good experiences like, like some people did. So, I mean, um, and, and yeah, talking about it, you're absolutely right. And, uh, it, it is liberating. And that's one of the purposes that I, I do this because it just makes me feel so much healthier and, and more relaxed about things in life that, uh, that kind of put them on the back burner and things that don't matter. Um, but, uh, you know, things like that are life changers. They really are. They really, I'm so glad I put that email address in the back of my book because um, I've really been touched by some of these these letters from people. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're about 800 of the 1,200, you know, uh, a good portion of them all start off. It's weird. They all start off with the same 
almost the same paragraph, almost the same wording. It'll be uh, the first paragraph will be something like, "Now, please don't think I'm crazy, or you're going to think I'm nuts, or I swear to God this is true. You know, I'm, I wasn't drinking or doing drugs when I saw this." You know, they started off with some kind of disclaimer, and then they tell these amazing stories. Uh, some of them were just like, Phew. Um, and then at the end, they're saying, you know, it's nice to have someone to share this with finally. So, Do you ever withhold any information just because um, you can compare notes with other people later on? Because, for example, you know, I, I, I saw something and I don't explain what it was, but there was a situation where um, there's an alien there and there's something very specific that it had. And um, I don't divulge that only because I want to see if somebody comes up with that same unusual thing um, and, and shares that with me. And it actually happened. And, and it was via email with somebody who, who contacted me and, and said, you know, I want to ask you a question. Did you see this? And I was like, wow, I certainly did. I, that, that blew my mind to have something that specific um, brought to my attention that, that paralleled this guy's same uh, experience. Yeah, that's crazy. I, and was he just curious? Was he did he live geographically close to where you lived? No, you no, not at all. I mean, you know, there's not a lot of people up here that um, that I've, especially from Montana, that I've ever talked to. Um, you know, they're they're scattered throughout the world. But what I do find in commentary is is a lot of people. I'm 54 years old, and a lot of people with the exact same age, you know, the, the exact same age as me, um, had experiences or you know, they, they had an experience back in, in 1977 or, or 1984, you know, yeah. um, specific years that, that I did as well that I only recently came out with. Yeah. Yeah. That is amazing. Yeah. I've talked to more than one person who saw something in 1977. Uh, and Dave Marler's book, uh, David Marler, uh, wrote the, wrote the, uh, the book on, on triangular shape. UFOs, and it's 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 almost like a, um, you know, like a uh, a work, an educational paper or something. It it, it has an academic ring to it because he, he did his homework and he investigated these cases. And uh, in 1977, he documented this woman traveling to Kansas City, um, and it was in the fall, just a couple months after this happened to us, and not far from Whiteman Air Force Base, maybe 15 miles, she saw this giant triangle uh, that matched the description of what I saw. So Interesting. Um, you know, I think one of the most important discoveries I made is, is discoveries from other people, and I'm sure it's going to be the same with you. But, uh, you know, I've talked to, I've talked to different um, people like Bruce Cornett, who uh, told me about um, this re reverse Doppler sound that he's heard um, from aircraft. And um, I know that, you know, back in when I was a kid, there were other times that I had experiences with something that I couldn't really identify that was really, really odd that, um, you know, I, I just attributed that to aircraft. And one in particular was um, I was out playing basketball all by myself. And this is out, this is out on the prairie in the middle of nowhere. And, and, uh, I was at the school, which it was closed for the summer and just me playing basketball out there. And, and literally I heard what was the sounded exactly to me. Like if a, if a 
if if somehow an, an aircraft, a big jet, could have gears and it put it into reverse accidentally, and this horrible sound and and this loud sound, it just from from no sound at all, and all of a sudden I'm listening to this, and I look up, and what I thought I saw was a big. We used to have a lot of B fifty two fly fly B fifty twos fly over because we were north of a, a big air force base, and. Why not? Uh, uh, Maelstrom, North Dakota, or Maelstrom, yeah. Maelstrom, Montana, by Great Falls. But uh, anyway, they um, they would fly over, and um, what it looked to me is like one of those with with another aircraft on top of it, and um, which really would have been much bigger and stuck out on each side. And I thought, well, they must be refueling. And what I'm hearing is two different aircrafts at the same time, um, and just playing tricks on my ears, but it was just a highly unusual thing. And, uh, later on, you know, thinking about it, it wouldn't have looked like that and wouldn't have sounded like that. So, um, you know, there were things that, that happened out there. And I think, you know, that I think definitely there are hot spots in the United States and elsewhere in the world that, uh, there's more activity than anywhere else. And there's probably a reason for that, but I, I really couldn't identify what that reason would be. Yeah. You know, Robert Hastings is a friend of mine, and he wrote that book, uh, uh, UFOs, Nukes and UFOs, uh, some 15 years ago or so. And, uh, yeah, he talked to a lot of people from, uh, well, from Malmstrom. Uh, and in his book, he talked to like, security police people, you know, people that worked in the missile squadrons, um, all kinds of active duty people. And he talked about how, Air Force bases in particular and uh, nuclear power plants are, are kind of magnets for these things. You know, nuclear, nuclear missile silos. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, it, it's mind-blowing. I, I, last night I had uh, a Bob Salas on the on the pod, podcast, and he was worked at a, a nuclear missile site. And, um, you know, it's interesting to, to hear that, you know, they had activity there and, um, it was verified through the Freedom of Information Act that it really happened. And so, you know, something unusual like that, if it, if it is so, so unusual, and um, they made a record of it and they had accounts of it and they did investigations and odd things happened to these nuclear missile silos, um, you know, what could it be? And, um, of course, there was never any indication that they came up with any anything else. You know, there was no... There was no reason for it happening. They couldn't figure out the reason. But there were these big red lights floating over this base. And it's crazy. Yeah. He's such a credible, a credible man. He really is. Oh, and he's just stoic. I mean, you couldn't, you, you couldn't, <laughs> you couldn't bend anything out of him if you wanted to. I mean, it, it, uh, it, it it's a, it's a quite a story. You know, he came out, uh, I do believe. And, uh, made a public statement that he had an abduction experience too. Yeah. So he had, he had experiences earlier. Um, describe, um, I've never been there and I've been to Northwest Arkansas, but I've never been to devil's den. What, what's that like? And, um, you know, what's the topography like and, and, uh, is it an isolated place? It is. Well, you know, 1977, it was very isolated. It's still isolated now, but, um, it's a beautiful park. It really is. Uh, lots of limestone outcroppings, lots of trees. Um, it was just, just a beautiful place. 
And when I when I sat down and started writing this book, I, I I thought, you know, I don't know anything about Devil's Den other than my negative experience. And uh, I kind of did the uh, thing like David Politis does, where he try, I tried to get information from the Park Service, from the Ar- Ar- uh, Department of Parks and Recreation in Arkansas and Little Rock. The, and, you know, they, would, they wouldn't help me, you know. Uh, I said, you know, can you tell me how many people gone have gone missing? No, we can't tell you that. We don't know. Don't have records. You want to send in a written request, we'll see if we can do something for you. And they never did. Um, so I, I did a search, and I found a um, reference out of the Pittsburgh Press, dated 1946. Uh, and I don't remember the exact date. It was June or July. Um, and if you want to look it up, you can you can pull up the Pittsburgh Press and do a search under Catherine with a K, Van, V-A-N, Alst. Two words, Van Alst. A-L-S-T is the, is the second part, Van Alst. Uh, when she was eight years old, her family took a, uh, a drive from uh, Philadelphia, or Pittsburgh, rather, uh, and they were headed to El Paso, Texas, to visit some relatives. And on the way, they decided they stayed at these campsites. And on their way, they decided to stay at Devil's Den. So... They had, you know, picnic tables set up and, uh, you know, they had a little place for, for people with campers and RVs that was, you know, popular back then. And um, her mother was setting the table for breakfast and she and her two brothers were running around and around the camper, you know, like kids will do. And the two boys came around uh, and popped around and there was no Catherine. And mom says, boys, where's your sister? And they're like, well, she was right here, you know. And, you know, and she's kind of annoyed. She says, go find your sister. So they think, well, you know, let's check the restrooms. And, and they're calling out her name. And then they're, they're kind of getting panicked. And they say, Mom, we can't find her. So Dad gets up. You know, he was asleep. He gets up. He gets involved. Um, several of the other campers think, well, you know, she's an eight-year-old in a bathing suit with flip-flops. She can't have gone very far. So everyone... Uh, joined and pitched in, tried to help find this girl. So we're all walking around yelling Catherine through the woods. Um, park rangers get involved. Um, and by nightfall, um, the family's really upset, obviously, and uh, the park rangers are organizing a, uh, a big search. So it, it was a big search, and the search lasted for seven days and six nights. The seventh day it was the last day it was going to transition from a, from a rescue to a recovery. Uh, at the end of that day, and in the and that afternoon of the seventh day, there was a uh, a volunteer. There were a bunch of volunteers there from a, a local university, and and this guy in, in in the newspaper article is referred to as Chadwick, and I tried to look him up. I don't know if Chadwick is a first name or a last name, um, but that's all they said. Uh, uh, Arkansas State student by the name of Chadwick was calling her name. Uh, and this was in an area that had been searched before. And it was also in an, in an area with an elevation of like 800 feet from their from their campsite. And she would have had to walk, I mean, miles in a crisscross pattern to reach the top of this, the summit of this thing. And he calls her name and she comes out from like a outcropping of rocks, ducks her head out and says, here I am. 
And, you know, he's ecstatic. He goes over and picks her up. Are you okay? And she's like, yeah, I'm fine. So they, he gets her down to the campsite. Everybody's uh, celebrating. And her hair was clean. Other than a couple bug bites, she wasn't worse, any worse for the wear. She hadn't lost any weight. She was well hydrated, despite the fact there was no potable water anywhere, you know, where she was found. And um, the Pittsburgh Press article says that the mother described her daughter's uh, demeanor as being uh, calm, uh, calm and serene. And I thought, that's calm is one word, but serene is kind of an odd, odd word, you know. I'd love to have talked to this woman. I tried to locate her, but, you know, uh, there's a million Van Alst and, uh, you know, she may be elderly by now. So, you know, I, I wasn't successful. So that's it. You know, there was no other account of, of what happened or she didn't know. She had no idea. She said, I couldn't tell you where well, I've been. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Her experience, David Polites wrote, uh, in his fourth book, Missing 411, is called The Devil is in the Details. And uh, the whole book is devoted to uh, state, federal parks, and land that has the name devil in it. Devil or Diablo, and I, there's a ton of them. You know, yeah. He did Catherine Van Alst's story as well hmm. in his book. Um, but yeah, there's like Devil's Lake, Devil's Glade, Devil's Tower, obviously, Devil's, you know... It, it, it's common, and a disproportionate amount of people go missing from places that have the name devil in it. Uh, and that was his his observation, not mine. Um, and he, he just mentioned it as, you know, because he, he's a very, you know, he takes the facts and doesn't try to make an interpretation from them and presents the facts to you, lets you draw your own conclusion. So were these, when you went camping in 1977 in June, uh, were these established campgrounds? Were you, were you, um, at a campground with, with other people or were you out, out alone away from civilization? You know, this was, this was my buddy. It was Tobias's idea that we take this trip, you know? Um, but I had a new camera and, you know, you really can't use a camera on a nuclear base and I wanted to photograph wildlife. So he kind of talked me into it, and and uh, and we went. Um, and I'm sorry, I, I drifted from, from your question. You, your, your exact question was... I was wondering if that was an established campsite with other people around, or you guys were just kind of isolated in your own part of the world. Right. We made the decision. Actually, Rodney made the decision. He says, well, Toby, Tobias, he says, you know... We really don't want to stay in a campground. He says, think about it. If we stay in a campground, we're going to have people on either side of us, you know, and there's going to be children and other undesirables running all over the place. And he says, you know, let's, let's, let's be real outdoorsmen. Now, now keep in mind, I, he, he was from Flint. I was from St. Louis, Missouri. I was 22. Toby was 23. Neither one of us had ever been camping in our lives. <laughs> Very good. So, we uh, we dodged the uh, the kiosk and the park, the, you know, the place where you go and get a camping permit. And we took uh, a road to the, went kind of on a northwesterly uh, path, and then it turned into 
a gravel road, and then finally it turned into kind of a dirt road. And there was a sign across the road uh, with a chain that said, you know, pretty sternly worded, keep out, no admittance kind of thing. And I said, well, I guess we're going to find another place. And we could see a, high, a piece of high ground out in the distance. Um, and that's kind of where we decided we wanted to head for. And my buddy says, hey, wait a minute. And he hops out of my car and he goes over to the post where this chain is. And what they've done is they've taken a padlock and made a noose out of it and padlocked the chain so that they could loop it over this post, drape it on a nail. So all he did was he picked up the chain, let it drop, and boom, we drove in and uh, found our found our space. And we found it, it was awesome. We, we went on a, a steady upward grade, and then we've crested the top of this hill. And there was this absolutely gorgeous field, I call it a meadow in the book, of late-blooming wildflowers and, and grass a little less than knee-high. And it was just a gorgeous place. And we had, I think I may have sent you some Google Earth photographs of it. Uh, I, I was shocked. The place is still there. And, you know, it should be overgrown with, with 40-year-old mature trees by now. But it's not. <laughs> it's not. It's it's. They keep it cut flat. I don't know why on earth they would do that. Um, but it was a gorgeous place to stay. So no, we didn't. We didn't stay in the campground. We were out in the. I called it uh, remote camping. And uh, you know that in hindsight, uh, none of this was accident. None of the, none, I think we were there for an appointment. I really do. Um, so you, you're having a great time and, um, it's a really nice night and then you just look above the horizon and, and what do you see? Well, we were, we were kicked back on these air mattresses around the bonfire. Uh, and it's, you know, nine ish, 10 ish, somewhere around there. And we're talking and laughing and just generally having a good time. And there came a lull in our conversation. Now, this sounds cliche. It sounds like something from a movie, but I swear to God, this is true. I noticed then that the crickets, the tree frogs, all the insects that make noise had died down and there was no noise because we'd been almost, you know, we had to raise our voice to carry on a conversation earlier. And now it's it's dead silent. I mean, all I can hear is the, is the campfire. And, you know, it wasn't only silent, it was still uh, we'd had a, a breeze going on that was pleasant, and that had even stopped. And it kind of spooked me. It did. It, it made me feel uncomfortable. And I asked my friend, you know, like he would know, you know. He's like, hey, man, is this normal to be this quiet? You know, he's like, yeah, well, you know, we've been laughing and cutting up, so we made a lot of noise. So, yeah, they'll be back. Crickets, tree frogs, they'll come back. Just wait. So, but I'll tell you, if I'd been there by myself, I'd have left at that point. And it wasn't long after that, maybe 20 minutes, um, he's fixated looking, he has his head turned to his left and uh, I'm to his right and he's looking at something. And he asked me, he says, hey, Terry, were those lights there before? And I'm like, what lights? What are you talking about? And I, I had to kind of remaneuver so I could see what he was talking about because he was in the way. Uh, and on the horizon, there sat these three little stars and they were in a tight little triangle and they were too far off the ground to have been like lights from a train or, or uh, 
you know, a shopping center or something. Besides, we were, we were in the middle of nowhere. We were miles from anything. And, uh, you know, we're talking about, well, what could this thing be? And while we're talking about it, it the three stars rotate. They rotate like they were on an axis. And it oriented itself with the apex of a triangle pointing up. Where when we first saw it, it was kind of sideways. It had to do about a 340-degree turn to orient itself with this point of the triangle up. And about this time, I felt this calm wash over me, the sensation of, uh, of, uh, of just calm and, hey, everything's cool, you know, and uh, I wasn't afraid anymore. And we watched this thing, and it started to climb up into the night sky. And it, the, the further up that it went, the larger it got. And the three points of light stayed always equidistant to one another. I mean, we could tell that it was a single solid object. And it like climbed to a high altitude and then began a descent. And we could tell when it started to descend that it was coming in our direction because it was getting bigger all the time. And this triangle, it was doing like somersaults where it would, uh, the, the apex, the, the light that was pointed in the direction it was moving would tumble underneath and then come back around. So we'd see three lights and two lights. And, um, and you know, I had the oddest thought that this thing was moving with purpose, that it wasn't just something out of control. And I don't know where that came from, but. And we could see that when it would pass uh, a star field, the stars would blink out until the thing had, had passed them. So we watch this thing as it descends, and I feel in waves this sedation. And, you know, when I was eight years old, I was thrilled. I was, you know, top of the world. I just thought this was the coolest experience. In this one, it was just totally different. I felt this almost disinterest. I mean, short of apathy, but uh, more like I was a observer than a participant. Strange feeling. I, and I know, I don't know any better way to describe it. Um, but like I say, all fear had left me. And it, it, when it started to come down, we could see that it was absolutely, absolutely huge. It was like the size of a Walmart. Wow. Um, and curiously, it fit right inside that metal. It, it covered that metal. I remembered the metal being horseshoe shaped, but uh, you know you get a different perspective walking it on the ground than you do when you see an aerial photograph of the thing. So this thing stops about three thousand feet over our heads, and neither one of us. There's like not, not a word said between us, and we're watching this thing, and from the underneath of it, there came this this white light, and it was a visible beam of light and it had that quality like a high power searchlight cutting through fog. You know what I mean? You could see this it was cylindrical column of white light and it boom popped on like someone hit a switch and it landed right in the middle of our campfire. And we're both looking at it and we're still not, we still have nothing to say. <laughs> and it stays there for maybe a minute and then it turns off and then immediately, in its stead, there came this laser-like light that was bluish-purple. Now, in 1977, I'd seen lasers on television, but I'd never seen one, you know, 
in real life. And this, this laser came from the uh, same place, directly in the middle and the underside of the, uh, of the uh, triangle. And the light would land at one spot and stay for maybe a tenth of a second and then reappear in another place for like a tenth of a second. So in, like, in every second, this thing would, would move to, to ten different locations. And it was all over the campsite. This thing was like it was dancing and I remember thinking, because the light hit me in the chest twice, I remember that, and I didn't feel anything. But I had the sense that, you know, this thing's checking us out. You know, we're being uh, scanned or something. It, it's, it's definitely checking us out. Uh, and again, no fear. And uh, that light turned off. And we sat there in the quiet for a while. And my friend Toby stood up and said, guess show's over. And... I was sleepy. I was so sleepy. All I wanted to do was lay down and go to sleep. Now, you know, I'm, we're both used to work in the night shift. So, uh, and we were tired from the drive, but you know, we we're 22 years old, best shape of my life. I should not have been sleepy. Um, where I had felt mildly sedated before, after this light went away, um, then I felt this Man, like, like someone gave me a sedative. I Really, I wanted to lay down and go to sleep. So he dragged his uh, air mattress over and threw it in the tent and fell on top of it. And I followed suit and threw mine in, and I fell on top of it. And I was out. I mean, I was out, out. And the best we can figure, about four and a half hours pass. And I wake up because there are these flashing lights that are very intense, and they're yellow and white and greenish. And when they would, and they they weren't flashing um, at at a predictable interval. They were just now and then flashing. And when they were incredibly bright, when they would flash, it would light up the whole inside of the tent. And I wake up, but I, I don't have my wits about me. I'm kind of confused. I'm thinking, well, oh yeah, yeah, I'm camping. That's right. And in my mind's eye, I'm thinking these lights must be the overhead lights of a park ranger's truck, you know, here to kick us out or something. And uh, I, I looked down at my feet and my boots were untied, unlaced. And I thought, how did that happen? Because I didn't do that. And I took them off and before I put them back on, I noticed my socks were on sideways. And I thought, nah, I know I didn't do that. I mean, you know, they teach you to take care of your feet when you're in the military. So, you know, I took my socks off, put them on correctly. Uh, and I still don't know what's going on. You know, I lace up my boots, and then I'm looking over my my buddy Toby, who's on his knees, and he's peeking out of the tent through this flap. Um, and in one of these flashes of bright light, I could see he'd been crying. I could see tracks of tears uh, that lit up down the right side of his face, and that scared me. And it was at that moment that all this. Calm, you know, disinterest, all this, that all left. That was all gone. Now I was, I was terrified because I couldn't imagine what would make this guy cry. And, I, and I'm like, Toby, man, what is it? Is it, is it park rangers out there? What's out there? And he kind of told me to be quiet. And I pull my flap of the tent back and I look out. I'm scared. And I see... Well, there were two things. This thing that when we went to bed was 3,000 feet over our heads has now descended, and it's now just about 30 feet over that meadow. 
and we could get a real feel for the size of the thing. And it was uh, intimidating. And then I saw what I first took to be children, about um, maybe 12 or 15 of them. And I could see them, especially when uh, the lights on the corner of the triangle would flash. Uh, we, it would light up the whole metal, and I could see them. And I'm like, Toby, man, what are these kids doing out here in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night? What? And he says, Terry, man, those ain't no little kids. Look at them. They're not human beings. He says, they took us and they hurt us. Don't you remember? And, and I did. I did have. Now, I've never had a clear, linear memory of what happened to us. But when he said that, I did have bits and pieces of memory of, of being inside this thing. Um, and, I, and we were both terrified. And we watched them for, I don't know, half an hour maybe. And then from underneath this triangle again, and again, it's only 30 feet over, our, over the uh, meadow, this white light comes back on. It has the same visible white quality as that light that landed in our campfire. But it's about maybe 25 feet in diameter. And it's definitely a column. And these little guys, um, I could tell he was right. They were not human beings. Their heads were dispro disproportionately large. They had spindly bodies. I mean, just typical, you know? Um, and they walk with a really distinctive gait. They walked like their knees weren't, uh, like their knees could go backward as well as forward. They, they walked, they were just awkward. It was a strange gait. I mean, or like they had sore feet or something. I don't know. But they didn't walk in, in, the, in the way that you and I take a walk. And these, these guys would go over into this column of light in twos and threes and uh, dissolve. Wow. And we watched them until the last pair stepped into the light and uh, they dissolved into the light. As soon as they were gone, like someone hit a switch, the light was off. And while we're watching the colored lights that were flashing on the points of the triangle shifted to all white. And we saw the thing take off. And I mean, it didn't take off like a rocket. I mean, it just, it just lifted off like a hot air balloon. Uh, and it went up slowly. And I remember thinking, you know, these, cause these lights, there was a, like a light bar and there was a beam of light that would move up and down that light bar on the point of each each leg of the triangle right at the point. And I remember thinking to myself, that's what gives the illusion of a twinkling star when it's in the air. And, uh, and I was right. Cause as it, as it climbed higher, it, it took on the, the, the look of, uh, three stars, traveling together, but uh, um, they twinkled in the sky, which I thought was interesting. And we watched it till it was one light and then gone. And we sat there, and you know, this doesn't make a lot of sense, but all I had over my head was canvas. But I was terrified of the idea of, of leaving the tent. I didn't want to leave the tent. I felt like I'd be vulnerable running to the car. And to this day, I, I don't feel comfortable walking across open spaces. I mean, I'll walk a mile around rather than cut across an open field because I still feel vulnerable from it. And when it was gone, 
we, we, my, my friend Toby said, well, you know, man, we got to get out of here. And I grabbed my keys. I had my wallet. I checked and he grabbed this flashlight and we ran to the car, started it up and we left everything we had there. We left our food, our cooler, the tent. Uh, Toby left a backpack with a camera in it and um, all this personal stuff. Uh, we left everything and hopped in our car and drove out of there. And we were we were hurting. And this is this is a little before sunup, and I'm driving as fast as I can and try to not get pulled over. And got out of the park, hit blacktop, you know, hit pavement again. And pointed my car north, north, and just started driving. And whatever they did to me, they must have given my friend a double dose because he was really in a lot of pain. He's—I had this big bench seat in my old Chevy, and he was curled up into a ball. Uh, he wasn't a big guy anyway, and and he's curled into this ball. And um, you know that—that's it. We didn't—we didn't have a discussion. We. Uh, we noticed that as soon as the sun came up, our eyes hurt. Our eyes were really, really sensitive to the sunlight. And uh, when we got back to the base, we were both married. Uh, you know, I'm still married, to, so my wife remembers this well. Um, she took me to the hospital, and Toby's wife took him to the hospital. And uh, I had this sunburn that was just short of blistering. I mean, it, I was beet red, but it didn't blister. And it was all over my body. It was on the soles of my feet, my hairline, under my arms. I mean, like everywhere. And, you know, my wife's like, why didn't you use sunscreen? And I'm like, you know, we weren't out in the sun. You know, we were in the shade. I mean, you know, I don't know how I got this way. And they uh, went to the hospital and had a uh, incredible physical exam. And while I was in there, I mostly had my eyes closed because my eyes hurt so bad. They diagnosed me as having, well, we were both severely dehydrated, so they got two IVs running. Uh, and Toby's in another treatment room, so we're, we're separated. And the base commander and the hospital commander, along with two guys in civilian clothes that I did not recognize, um, came into the treatment room. And asked the doctor to excuse himself. They wanted to talk to me. Now, I, I was on good terms with the hospital commander. He's my boss. I mean, I, you know, I had a good relationship with him. I was a good employee. Um, and he said, Sergeant Lovelace, you're to have no contact with Sergeant Tobias in any way, shape, or form, not verbally, not in writing. You're not to give him anything. He's not to give you anything. You're not to call him or attempt to contact him through third parties. And he was very stern about it. And he says, do you understand that? That's my order. And I said, yes, sir. Now, I, it, they, they wanted us separated. They did not want us talking to one another. Um, and I spent uh, two nights, three days in the hospital. And on my second night, my last night there, uh, is when I had the, the uh, OSI come into my room. My night nurse came in and, and gave me an injection for pain, or, or was about to, and this um, major, well, he was in civilian clothes, but he, he flashed his ID um, with his OSI badge, and, and his rank was on his uh, ID. And he said, 
if that's going to sedate Sergeant Lovelace, that's going to have to wait. We need, we need to ask him a few questions. And then he, he, he said, and shut the door on your way out. And it was just rude the way he said it. And I thought, you know, what, you know, what's, what's the reason for this? Um, but I could tell these guys were cops. I mean, you know, they just look like, I hate to stereotype people. Um, I used to work with the police when I was a prosecutor. So, I mean, I don't, it's not like I think of them badly, but these guys had their, their suit coats were open and they had the shoulder holsters that they wore and you could, it was visible. They, you know, you could see them. They didn't make any attempt to hide their firearm. And uh, they kind of walked, kind of sauntered, and you know they walked walk like they were in, with a, they, they had authority. And the one says to me, because um, I, I piped up and I said, "Sir, am I in some kind of trouble?" And the major looks over, and his sidekick was a younger guy, a captain, maybe in his early thirties, and he looks over at the captain, and they both laugh. And he says, and you know, he had this weird uh, Louisiana accent, uh, kind of like Calvin Parker. If you've ever talked to Calvin Parker or heard Calvin. Sure I have. I've had him on the show. Yeah. He's an amazing man. He is. He's a great guy. And this OSI agent said, uh, you know, son, would we be here if you weren't in trouble? <laughs> you know, <laughs> That's a good one. Oh, my God. What do we do? <laughs> Did we burn a forest down or something? <laughs> All so, right. So now that now they put the ball in the other court, it's your problem. It, it was my problem. Wow. And they what happened was we didn't put the chain back up across the road. Oh. Now park rangers found it in the morning. And when they found our campsite, everything was there, you know. The, the, we had two blankets that were hospital issue we took from the hospital. We intended to bring them back, of course. Um but our air mattresses were in the tent and the campfire extinguished, I'm sure. And they found Toby's backpack that had his name and address in it. They could see that he was from the base. So I found out later they had called the base and said, it looks like two of your airmen have been down here. And they set up a camp and it looks like they're planning on coming back because they left all their stuff. So this guy starts quizzing me. Why would you guys leave all your stuff? He says, you're planning on coming back? He said, do you have a little marijuana plot growing somewhere out there? <laughs> now, that scared me. That scared me. That would have been a trip to Leavenworth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> active duty? Oh, my God. So I'm like, no, sir, no, sir, no, sir, no, sir. And um, he said, well, if you don't have a big bag of marijuana in your house or in your car, you wouldn't mind if I took a look, would you? And I thought, you know, shouldn't you get a warrant or something? But I, but I didn't say that. I thought, you know, if I protest, I mean, I I didn't know. I was 22. I never didn't have the life experience or benefit of a law degree. I didn't know. And I said, uh, I thought that if I if I protested, I'd look guilty. So I said, sure, no problem. So I signed a bunch of consents. Now I I can't I can hardly see. I can't read these things uh, because of my eyes. They had kept the lights turned off in my room because my eyes were so sensitive. And as soon as that nurse shut the door, the guy turned on the overhead lights. And I'm like, sir, could you turn those out? You know, that really hurts my eyes, please. And he says, no, got to see what we're doing, son. You know, that, that Calvin Parker thing going on. <laughs> and they did this. They ended their interrogation, um, which was pretty much just an intimidation exercise. 
you know, when I look back at it in retrospect, it was it was it was to intimidate me, and they, they succeeded beyond their wildest dreams. I was I was thoroughly intimidated, and um, the captain leaves and shuts the door behind him. And the head of my bed was near the door. It was a small room. And he put his hand on the door so that he'd feel somebody trying to come in. And he got down right next to my face. And he said, son, I know, and you know, you two knuckleheads stumbled onto something out there. And I think you know what I'm talking about. And I didn't answer him. I didn't know how to answer him. I knew I wasn't going to tell him I saw a UFO the size of Walmart. I mean, I knew <laughs> I'd be in a psych ward. A super Walmart, even. Oh, a super Walmart. Yeah. Absolutely. So he says, yeah, I think you know what I mean. And he says, all I want to know is how many pictures of it did you take? And I want your camera and your film. So they must have known. They had to know that this thing was was there. Their concern was that I had taken, you know, 36 exposures of it and I was going to send it to the, you know, the National Enquirer or something. God, I wish I had, you know. And, you know, it's crazy while we're watching this thing. And I think this speaks to how they can control your your mindset. You know, the thought of taking a photograph of this thing never crossed either one of our minds. Never. There's a lot of adrenaline. I mean, people, people, uh, use that as, as some sort of, I don't know, argument, you know, that you didn't have that experience, but there's a lot going on in your head. I mean, I, I have a quote on, I can't even quote myself on my own quote, but on my uh, Facebook page regarding that, which makes a lot of sense, but it, there's a lot going on in your head and that adrenaline makes, I mean, the, the, the point was, you know, fleeing and fighting and, and uh, those are the first things that, that come to your mind. Yeah. Or, or to your, or to your uh, nervous system. I think that's right. Well, you know, that, that ties in with that feeling of sedation too. Yeah. Uh, that I had. And I, I certainly wouldn't have wanted to uh, use a camera with a flash while those things were walking around in a meadow. Well, that's so, the other, that's the other thing too. And the feeling that I had, I don't want to do anything to attract attention right now. You know, I don't want to move. I don't want to breathe. I don't want to, you know, that was my, thought and um so i'm just gonna ride it out and it's who's gonna make the first move so I, I i likened it to a mexican standoff and it was frightening we had very similar emotions i remember thinking like i said i had this canvas over my head that uh, provided me cover you know i, I was hidden and uh, we were both just on our knees looking out and just scared to death and my friend's starting to hyperventilate and i'm like man you got to get control of your breathing and um yeah, we were just afraid that we were going to draw attention to ourselves. So, I had a neighbor buddy who, um, even as little kids, I felt that that uh, he would overreact um, to situations, to fear, and things that we did as kids. And you know, I always wondered what that came from. And um, you know, it was it was later on I I realized that we had some of the same experiences, but. Um, I don't know. I always thought they struck him a different way and and caused him to panic in in situations that were not worth panicking over. So, um, you know, not that my my reactions were much better, but but, you know, as a kid, you know, kids react in different ways. And um, again, going back to this notion that everybody have 
everybody has these different experiences and, um, you know, some people see things differently. Some people feel things differently. And why is that? That's, that's what I want to know. One of the many questions. Yeah. You know, there was something Toby and I worked together for a couple of years and we were best of friends. I mean, on our off time, we, you know, often play cards or barbecue. Our wives were friends. Um, and something changed. Um, I, I I can't reconcile it, but I, I, I left that park thinking, I, you know, I was sick of the guy. He didn't want anything to do with him. So, you know, when, when the uh, hospital commander said you'd have had no contact with him, I thought, that's fine with me. And that's just wasn't right. You know, it just wasn't right. I mean, uh, you know, we were friends. Um, and I did see him before I, he left. They, they cut him orders for Japan. And he was PCS out of there in like weeks. So uh, even though we had this order of no contact, I told my wife, I really want to say goodbye to Toby. And she's like, man, I wouldn't, you know, don't mess with these OSI people, Terry, you know. Um, but I did. I stopped by his house and there was a, uh, a truck in the driveway and they're loading it with boxes. And I kind of jog up the uh, driveway and I walk through the same doorway I've walked through a hundred times before. And there's his wife and she's just glaring at me. And she says, you're not supposed to be here. And I said, I know, I just, I just want to say goodbye to Toby. And I heard you guys are going to Japan. And Toby heard this exchange and he came around the corner and I was shocked. He was, he was always particular about his appearance. Uh, he wore, his clothes were dirty. He had a dirty t-shirt. He was barefoot. His hair was a mess. Uh, it just, it just struck me as odd. I, I'd never seen him in that kind of condition. And he walked up to me and it was just an odd, really odd thing. Here this guy is. He's my, you know, my best friend. And, uh, you know, I thought it would be appropriate to embrace him, but I didn't. And we managed this awkward exchange of a handshake. And he was a shorter, he was about six inches shorter than I am. I'm a little over six foot. And he looks up at me and says, it happened, didn't it, Terry? <laughs> yeah. And I looked down at my shoes and I said, yes, my brother, it happened. And he said, but why us? And I said, man, I don't know. I don't have a clue. I just want to wish you well. And uh, I could, he reeked the vodka, which was Again, out of character, this guy would maybe drink a beer, beer and a half at a barbecue, but never known him to drink hard liquor or drink anything to excess. And uh, I turned and I, I ran back to the car. I didn't look back. What's your What's your impression of the uh, AFOSI and and what do you believe to be their their major function? Or actually, let's just talk about then what their function was was then. Sure, sure. OSI, for maybe if anybody doesn't know, it stands for Office of Special Investigations. And the OSI is to the Air Force what NCIS is to the Navy. They're the, the investigative branch of the Air Force's security police. So I was told um, by Lou Elizondo, actually, when he came to visit me, that there were rogue elements uh, out there, people that... Um, that, uh, you know, pretty much had their own agenda and did what they wanted. And uh, he said that, 
I'm hopeful that wouldn't happen to, to anyone today. And I said, well, I hope not. What do you think their goal was then? Their, their goal was, first and foremost, they wanted to make sure that I hadn't photographed this thing. Because it was common knowledge in the hospital squadron that I was an amateur photographer. I had a new camera. I had a darkroom set up to develop black and white prints in, my, in the spare bedroom of my house. And uh, that, I think that was their main concern, that I had taken photographs of this thing. And their second thing on their agenda was they did not want Toby and I to have contact with one another. Because, you know, two people telling the same story has a lot more credibility than one. And they just did not want that to happen. And uh, Toby and his wife divorced. And when uh, we were in Michigan, she reached out to my wife. They were, they were good friends. And she had remarried, and the guy she married was a long-haul truck driver. And uh, Tammy knew where we lived, and she said, we'd like to stop by and visit. And my wife said, sure. So she came by with her new husband, a nice guy, and came in, and we kind of sat down, and it was kind of like talk about old times. And she told, I asked her, I said, what, what happened to Toby? And she says, he just fell apart. She said, after this thing happened to you guys, he just fell apart. He just, he just fell apart. And, you know, I remember when I went in her house to say goodbye, she gave me this real hard look. And uh, I found out when she was in my house, she told me that uh, Toby told her, yeah, this is all Terry's idea. <laughs> so thanks, Toby. That, uh, Great idea. Yeah. So he left the Air Force under... Um, not good circumstances. And I reached out to him, try to talk to him. Uh, I had his father's phone number in Flint and I called him uh, in the early eighties, a couple times and spoke to his dad and he knew who I was. And I, and I asked him, I said, would you, would you please have him contact me and left my number. And he says, next time I see him, I will. And the second time I talked to him, he said, yeah, Toby's spending a lot of time on the street. I don't know. Uh, and then the third time I called, the number was disconnected. So, uh, so I, I wasn't able to contact him that way. Um, but a few years later, uh, I was working on a case uh, that involved the FBI. And I became friends with this FBI uh, agent. Uh, nice guy, smart guy. And I asked him, we, uh, Friday nights sometimes after... We got done at the office. We'd go down and have a beer or, you know, at the, the corner. And uh, I asked him, I said, you know, Friday night, can you join me for a beer? He said, sure. So we're having a beer. And I asked him, hey, could you find a friend for me, a guy I was in the military with? And he's like, sure. As long as the guy's not a fugitive, I can find anybody. And he says, give me uh, everything you got on him. And uh, I anticipated that, so I had a sheet of paper with name and dad's name and everything that I could think of uh, about the guy, and I gave it to him, and he looked at it and said, okay, let me see what I can do for you. But he said, you know, this is just between us. It's not an official investigation, and he made that clear. And I said, sure, I understand. I appreciate, appreciate the favor. So about two weeks later, he calls me back, and he says, uh, you know, meet me again. It's Friday night. I said, Sure. And he says, I got some news for you. And I knew it would be about Toby. So we got together and um, 
He says, I got bad news for you. I'm afraid your friend is dead. Whoa. I'm like, he's dead? What do you mean he's hmm. dead? He said, yeah. He said, I'm sorry, Terry. It was a car accident in Flint. And he, he didn't survive. And he says, you know, that kind of thing happens. And, you know, at the time I thought, well, you know, I guess you're right. Things like that do happen. And I trusted this guy. And because um, I knew FBI agents to be as people of integrity. And this guy lied to me. Um, when I was doing the research for my book, I thought I'd look up his obit. Toby wasn't his real name, but I, out of deference to his family uh, and his child, I, uh, I used a... Uh, I used Tobias. So I searched for his obit and um, I found it. And he was alive until 2007, wow. September 4th, 2007. So all those years that we could have got together, um, yeah. wasted. You know, he probably tried to reach out to me and who knows why he didn't. You know, I was fairly visible. I'd be easy to find. And... But that's, that's the way it ended up. But, you know, I came out of this thing rattled and, um, you know, I, I suffered some after effects from it. You know, you were talking about, uh, you know, I have some peculiarities. You know, I, if I'm in a mall, if there are malls anymore, I remember malls. Uh, and, and they have, the, for some reason, the nude mannequins in a storefront window freak me out <laughs> they do i mean they'll yeah. throw me a panic attack i'll be grabbing an ativan because i i i will leave i have to leave the leave the store right so and i, I don't understand that but you know did you ever um after the publication of your book did you ever speak to anybody like uh uh Doty or, or walter bosley about uh afosi uh, I spoke to two people, and they've asked me not to use her name. And um, the one person uh, told me that the drug that they used was sodium amytal. And uh, I didn't get into this, actually, but about eight weeks after I got out of the hospital, uh, they, I was summoned to the OSI office, and they sent a car for me. So a uh, driver pulled up in a... In a you know, blue police car, and I got in the back seat and uh, took me to OSI headquarters and walked me down this corridor that had these little interrogation rooms on either side, and they were marked alphabetically, like A, B, C, D, and I was at the end of the hall and on the right, I think it was E, and he opened the door with a key and said, have a seat, someone will be right with you. And the door closed like a bank vault, so I didn't even try to see if the door was locked. It was obvious it was. And this room was about the size of my bathroom. You know, it was a good-sized bathroom, but, I mean, it was a small – it was an interrogation room. And there was a, uh, like, 1950s vintage uh, military desk, gray, with a gray swivel chair with some padding. And in the corner, there were three of those um, – in the 60s and 70s, there were those fiberglass colored seats that were ubiquitous. They were, you know, in waiting rooms and sure. in yellow and red and green, mostly yellow. And um, 
Those were in the corner. And then there was a, a framed mirror on the wall. And I thought, huh, that's odd. Who would be grooming themselves during an exam? And then it hit me. It, it must be a two-way affair. And uh, I wanted to go over and, you know, cup my hands around it and see if I could peek into it. But I, I didn't have the nerve to do that. I, uh, I sat there and waited and waited and waited. Um, and I think that was intentional. You know, I think they wanted me to be good and anxious. And I sure, I sure was. And um, the two agents came in. Um, and I call him in my book. I refer to him as Agent Gregory, was the major. Um, and he sat down. Well, he came, first thing he did was kick me out of the comfortable padded chair and put me in one of those fiberglass chairs. And he took some stuff out of the files out of this briefcase. And he was he was polite. And he said, well, we might just close your case today. Would you like that? And I said, yes, sir. I'd like that very much. He said, good. Maybe we can do that. You know you're going to be hypnotized today. And I said, no, sir. I did not know that. And I said, but, but, but why? I don't understand why. And I started to protest. And he reached into his, his um, one of these manila folders. And those forms that I, I signed, those consents that I signed when I was in the hospital, one of them had a caption that read, um, consent to hypnotic regression uh, and with, with chemical enhancement, words to that effect. And he slams this piece of paper down in front of me. And he points to my signature and says, is that not your signature, son? And I said, yes, sir, it is. But I, I, I would rather not. And he says, oh, well, that's not a problem. He says, you can withdraw your consent, son. He says, I can tear these papers up. I'll throw them in that trash can. And, and we'll leave and we'll just, we'll just see you at the court-martial. Now, you know, I haven't been charged with a crime. You know, I don't even know. Other than asking for my film, I don't even know what these guys want from me. But the whole purpose of that exercise was to find out if I'd hidden some film. Um, while we're sitting there, uh, the two agents then ignore me and they, they're, they're chit-chatting back about golf or something. And this guy knocks on the door and the captain opens the door and he walks in. It's a major kind of a big barrel chested guy, I refer to him in the book as Brad. And um, he wore oak leaves, but he had no name tag on, which struck me as odd. And he, I thought this must be their hypnotist, you know? And this guy, I mean, he carried himself more like a priest or a, a therapist. He didn't carry himself like a military officer. And he puts out his hand, he's like, Sergeant Lovelace, it's so good to finally meet you. And I shook his hand. And I said, yes, sir. Nice to meet you. And he pulled up a chair, like invading my personal space right next to me because he, he kicked the, the Major Gregory out of the comfortable chair and took it for himself and wheeled it around. And um, he says, Sergeant Lovelace, for purposes of this little exercise today, would you call me Brad? That is my name. And it was just, it was just. That's creepy. odd. Yeah. And then he says, and may I call you just for today? May I call you Terry instead of Sergeant Lovelace? And I said, yes, sir. And he says, uh-uh-uh, don't you mean yes, Brad? And I said, yes, Brad. 
And he told me, he says, you know, I'm going to hypnotize you today and I'm going to give you some medicine in your arm and it'll make you feel relaxed. He kind of winks at me and says, you know, you look like a guy that that uh, has a beer now and then. I bet you'll enjoy this. A lot of people tell me it's very, uh, it's a very pleasant experience. And I thought, you jerk, you know, well, you, you assume that I'm a drinker because I'm an enlisted man. You know, I mean, I took offense to that. And... Uh, then he started talking about St. Louis, and he rattles off some landmarks, and I feel like I'm starting to actually get comfortable with the guy. And then when I, as soon as I realized that, I thought, you know, this is the time to put my guard up, and I think he sensed that, and he shifted gears and uh, cut off the chit-chat and, uh, and proceeded to give you some medicine. He gave me an injection in the, in the crook of my arm. He had a, a little like shaving kit with a rubber piece of rubber tubing and some alcohol swabs and stuff. Gave me an injection in my arm, and it was like, bam. It was, it was uh, if you've ever had IV sedation, like in, in preparation for a surgical procedure or something. Yeah, you've ever had, lights had, out. Light, yeah, well, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was kind of... They, the drug is, is classified as a hypnotic, and I understand why they call it a hypnotic, because I was, I was awake, but barely, and um, I could hear him, and I'm kind of in this passive position in his chair, and he takes me through this progressive relaxation exercise. And you know what? I'm determined. I, I can't resist the medication, but I can resist the hypnosis. And I thought, you know, I'm not going to give this my mind to this guy. I'm going to do everything I can to passively resist. And I and I did. So he had me do this exercise of you're going to, you know, there's a stairway. You take the first step going down, feeling relaxed, feeling calm. Take that next step, Terry. Now you're feeling twice as relaxed, twice as calm, feeling warm, feeling secure. You know, that kind of thing. He had this real smooth voice like a radio announcer. And, and it was just easy to listen to the guy. And I'm thinking, no, 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 I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. So in my mind's eye, I'm going up the staircase, right? Uh, and uh, when he's talking and, and pro- trying to progressively make me relax, I... Uh, I'm doing multiplication tables in my head. I'm playing Beatle music. I'm doing anything I can to not surrender my full mind to him, uh, which was difficult because I, I, like I said, I couldn't fight the medication. Um, and I may have been hypnotized. I don't know. I, I don't think that I was. I certainly wasn't fully. Um, I know that I wouldn't have a lot of the memories of what happened to us at night had he not hypnotized me. Because he called this stuff out of my subconscious, and I saw images I didn't I didn't remember. So you know, and, and I think that turned out to be a good thing because I I think that if you don't do that, and these memories are suppressed of, of some kind of traumatic event like this of this scale, and you repress that and it's in your head, I think it can manifest in unhealthy ways. You know, alcohol abuse or mental illness or come out some kind of way that's that's not healthy. So um, when, when he was confident that uh, I was under, because the captain whispered to him, is he under? And he says, oh, yeah, piece of cake. He was gone by the, by the time I counted three. And I thought, jerk, you know? <laughs> yeah. He asked me, he said, Terry, I want you to tell me what you see. Don't tell me what you think. 
I want you to go back. Go back to the devil's den. Go back to the plateau. Go back to being inside the craft and tell me what you see. No, he didn't say that first. He said, tell me what you see. Don't tell me what you think. And I said, yes, Brad. And uh, he said, you guys saw some funny lights in the sky, didn't you? And I said, yes, Brad. And I could see him in my mind's eye. I mean, that was a conscious memory, right? And he said, uh, but those weren't stars at all, were they, Terry? And I said, no, Brad, I don't think they were. And he says, who were they, Terry? And I said, they're the space people. And I was shocked. I mean, I couldn't believe that came out of my mouth. And I had memories then. As I said, I've never had a clear linear memory of everything that happened to us. I just have a couple of bits and pieces, little vignettes of things that we experienced. Um, and that's all. That's enough. Um, and he asked me, he said, you know, what? he asked me to describe the inside of the ship, which I did. And, you know, it was a funny thing. This this thing looked like a Walmart. I think I told you, or a super Walmart, or, or you know, it was huge. Um, but the inside of the thing, now, I don't know if they took us somewhere else. Maybe we weren't inside that thing. Maybe we were somewhere else. Because the inside of this thing was as big as like a football stadium. And it was just tall. I mean, it was just incredibly big on the inside. And again, I don't know if I, that was that ship or someplace else. I have no idea. Um, everything was like stainless steel or white porcelain. Uh, there was a gray moving sidewalk. Uh, I know that because, um, well, I'll tell you in a minute, but, um, and I could see uh, parked on the side, on the left side, there were three flying saucers parked. I mean, they were lined up against the wall like, like planes under a carrier deck. And I was, Calvin and I talked about this. The only thing I could move was my eyes. And my eyes are darting around and I'm trying to drink in everything. And I'm thinking, I got to remember this. I got to remember this. And I'm also thinking, well, I hope they turn me loose. I hope they don't hurt me. And um, I have a memory of a woman screaming. And then I was aware that my, my buddy who was next to me was gone they had undressed us, and we were both standing next to each other. As I said, we were frozen, couldn't move anything but our eyes, and I'm holding my clothing and my boots in my hand, and Toby's doing the same. And um, then I'm aware that he's not there, and then I heard him scream, oh, my God, oh, my God, no. And then uh, a scream. I mean, he was in pain. They were hurting him, and, uh, and I'm just scared to death. And I looked to my right, and there were other human beings in this thing, um, anywhere from a dozen to 20. I mean, I couldn't count them because I didn't have, uh, I couldn't turn my head to completely look at them. I only see them through my peripheral vision. But we were off to the side. We were segregated from them, and I felt that was a good thing. Uh, and these people were, they weren't men. Uh, they were a mixed bag of men, women, and children. And they were all frozen like us, and their eyes are darting all over the place, and they're all crying. And I just thought, man, where am I? And then it must have been my turn, uh, because I remember going down a hallway on a moving sidewalk, and I'm like, you know, like a mannequin or something. 
I can't move. And we went down the long hallway and out of my peripheral vision to the right, there was a wall of um, what looked like fish tanks uh, in varying sizes. And in a couple, there was this pink water or to some kind. And these things that looked like puppies. I, th- I thought they were puppies. You know, how puppies, uh, when they're first born, have that, the folds of skin all over. Yeah. That's what these things kind of look like. And um, they took us, I was in this white domed room. And these gray guys put me on this um, porcelain table. And I remember thinking, this thing's not cold. And then I thought, yeah, it's not cold because, you know, I'm probably the 10th body in a row that's been lying here. And at the foot of the thing, there was this um, insectoid. Uh, This thing looked like a praying mantis. Now, I I swear, I picture this thing as wearing a white lab coat. But I'm sure there's no way this thing was wearing a white lab coat. But I got this medical vibe from him. Uh, and I really wasn't, I was more, I was worried about him hurting me more than I was being afraid of his appearance. And I remember I'm filling my lungs with as much air as I can. And I'm screaming because he's starting to do something to my lower back and it hurt and it hurt a lot. And I'm screaming and I can't hear anything. And I'm thinking, how does that work? And and I, I keep screaming and evidently, I annoyed, annoyed uh, you know, Dr. Bug here because it, it – and this thing is like seven foot tall, and it turns this big green bulbous head in my direction and looks at me with its left eye looking down. And I heard this thing in my head as crystal clear as any spoken word I've ever heard. And it said, why are you screaming? Stop screaming. You know we don't hurt you. You know we take you back. Now stop screaming. And he tapped me on the head, and I was out. And they um, they dumped me by they dumped both of us by our car, and then we were barely I was barely conscious. I don't know Toby's condition, uh, but they dumped me by the car, and uh, I thought, boy, these guys screwed up. They should have taken us inside the tent. And then pretty soon, these little gray guys. Well, I have a theory about them, by the way. I'll tell you, little gray guys come and they dragged us and threw it kind of unceremoniously threw us into the tent. And I have a feeling that's probably who who redressed us. That's why my socks were on sideways and my boots were on so unlaced. And um, I I barely remember them throwing me in. And then I was out again for some period of time. I don't know how long. And, you know, that's when I woke up to the flashing lights. So uh, Brad, the hypnotist, you know, pulls all this out of my subconscious and I tell him everything I remember. And then he's, I could tell we're getting towards the end because uh, this sodium manitol or whatever it was is short acting. So he had to give me several doses of it. And he asked me, he says, now, Terry, this is very important. You told these two agents here when you talked to them when you were in the hospital, you told them that you didn't take any pictures. Is that true, Terry? Were you truthful with those agents? And I said, yes, Brad. And he said, and you never took a photograph. I said, no, sir. No, Brad. No, never took a photograph, which is true. It was true. So then he uh, 
progressively walked me back up the stairs and uh, told me I could stretch and uh, and I that was that felt good and I thought I'd been under like for an hour maybe and it was more like three and um, uh, I come and I kind of get my wits about me and uh, Brad had a glass of water for me and I drank some water and I'm kind of shaking this this off and I get my wits about me and um, and Brad leaves the hypnotist, you know, doesn't say, I thought it was odd. He didn't say, you know, goodbye or nice to meet you. See you later. You know, he just, he just left. And um, so I'm there with these two agents and Gregory, the one in charge says, well, we're going to close your file today. So he said, but you know, you don't need to be telling people about any of this stuff. I don't know what you remember, but he said, whatever you remember, I'd forget about it. You understand? And I said, yes, sir, I do. And he says, you're free to go. And I, I left. And there was a driver waiting for me, same guy. Uh, and he took me home. Uh, Major Gregory said, you know, he says, I cleared it with the, the, with your boss. You can go home and take the rest of the day off. I said, great, thanks. I appreciate that. And, uh, and that was it. And then, you know, October, of, uh, October 25th of 1979, my enlistment ended. And I separated from the Air Force and finished my undergrad degree in psychology and went to law school in Michigan. Amazing. And we don't have a lot of time, but the implant, we need to go back and revisit that. Is it still there? No, there's a weird story about the implant. I, I wish we had 30 more minutes. Um, this is this is detailed in my book. Um because there's more detail that goes into it than we have time for. So I'll, I'll make it an abbreviated version. Sure. And it won't make a lot of sense. But in October, third week in October, 2017, I'm working on my book, right? And um, almost done with it. And I woke up in my living room. And I thought, that's odd. And I've never sleepwalked, not, not one time in my life. And seated directly across from me is this woman that I first took to be a petite Asian woman. And she's wearing black, like a black pants suit, black uh, shoes, like sturdy black nursing shoes with a heel to give her some height. Uh, extra long sleeve. She had those long black fingers. She was not a human being. I mean, I mean, if she walked down the streets of Houston, she probably wouldn't draw a second look. Um, but I'm looking at her pretty close because she's in my living room. And I have that same feeling of sedation. I'm calm. I glance over. I see the alarm is still set. My cat's in the corner sleeping. And I thought I could scream for my wife, but I bet she's not going to hear me. They probably got that covered. And this woman, this thing, had on this wig, and it was all askew. It was sideways. And the reason for that is that she had a, the back of her skull was bulbous. It was huge. And the wig that she was wearing was obviously meant for a human head, not, not hers. So this wig just kind of sat funny on top. And um, she never told me her name. I, I referred to her in my book as Betty um, because I know it sounds crazy. But she reminded me of Betty Rubble from the Flintstones with this black hair. So 
she spoke to me uh, telepathically, like uh, Dr. Bug did. And I, I realized that um, we, were, we were communicating telepathically, and it felt perfectly fine. And then I thought, you know, what if I think the wrong thing? What if I think something that makes her mad? You know, what if I think of anything inappropriate? Well, you know, you, you get a bunch of fourth graders and you tell them don't think about elephants. And, you know, they're all, well, what are they going to do? They're going to think about elephants. And um, looking back at it, this is almost kind of funny. I had this, all these inappropriate things <laughs> run through my mind. And she looked at me kind of puzzled and she says, Terry, you can keep some of your thoughts private if you try. Now, I don't know if she just said that for my benefit or what, but um, but I tried. And I could see why we don't, as human beings, communicate telepathically, because it, it takes um, discipline. And she told me, and I said, why are, you know, I asked, why are you here? Why are you in my living room? And uh, before she could answer, I had the thought, does this have something to do with these things in my leg? And she nodded her head and fired back, yes. And uh, I was, I was going to try to get the thing down by my knee removed. I was going to actually see, because I had had a heart attack in 2005, and I had in 2011, I had a, a what do you call it, a stent put in my heart. Um, I, had, I talked to a bunch of surgeons, both at the VA and out of my pocket. I paid to talk to private uh, surgeons because I wanted them to take me out, put, take this thing out and put it in my hand. Well, the surgeons, when they saw the x-rays, were thrilled. They thought, cool, you know, yeah, we'll take this out for you. No problem. Every one of them. Uh, and they, they said, you know, we need your medical history. And, and they said, oh, I see, you know, you've had a heart attack. I need a cardiac clearance letter. And I said, okay, so you need a letter from my cardiologist saying it's cool that I have the surgery. And he said, yeah. He said, that's standard of care. I need that. Well, nobody, no cardiologist would give me a cardiac clearance letter. That's why I didn't have the thing removed because I wanted it out of my body immediately. Um, but I was told and verified that the standard of care is, you know, there, there's a half a million veterans walking around out there with shrapnel in their bodies. That 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 they probably would like to have removed, but if it's not if it's not bothering them, it's it's a risk benefit analysis, and there are risks that go with surgery. And if these things are benign, let them lie. So I could not get uh, uh, a surgeon in uh, the states to touch me. So I was in the middle of working with this uh, clinic in Mexico. I was going to go to Mexico and have it removed. And she knew that. And she said, if you proceed with your plans to have this thing removed, um, she referred to them as her host. She said, you call them aliens, I call them my hosts, which I thought was an odd word. It has several different connotations. I mean, it can be a verb, it can be a noun, but just odd. And she said, it, the thing that's in your leg can't, because I asked her, I said, what? What purpose does this serve? And she wouldn't answer my my question. She said, oh, it serves many purposes. You know, just would not, she wasn't taking questions. And she said they, the, the, the aliens would not let this thing fall into the hands of terrestrial scientists. She said, if you proceed with your plans to have it removed, uh, my host will come and remove it 
in the middle of the night while you're sleeping. And I thought, okay. And um, that was about it. And to cut to the chase here, um, I woke up the next morning and I thought, man, that was that was real. Um, and, I, and I grabbed my notebook and I wrote down everything that I could remember. You know, part of the reason I have such a good memory about this is I it was in the habit of journaling and everything that happened to me while I was in the Air Force, the experience with this thing, I drew a picture of the craft, um, I journaled in notebooks. And uh, that came in handy when I sat down to write the book. But I woke up November 17th, 2017, uh, about three weeks after this woman visited me. And I woke up and I'm in pain. And I got pain at the top of both of my legs. And uh, I woke up and it hurt so bad I can hardly move. And I, they didn't, I didn't see the bruises until the following day. It didn't bruise uh, until the next day, but I had these puncture wounds. They weren't bleeding, but they were distinct puncture wounds at the top. They weren't at the bottom of my leg where my knee is, but they were at the top of my leg. So, but I don't know how far up those wires went. So maybe they pulled it out that way. But I can tell you, my it, it, it hurt. I was in a lot of pain. I told my wife, I said, you know, I think they came and they took that thing out of my leg. And she says, well, go get an x-ray. I'm like, good idea. You know, so I... You know, you can't get an x-ray on demand. I mean, you can't walk into an imaging center and say, I need an x-ray. They, they, they want something from a doctor. So I had X, the x-rays uh, copied onto copy paper, and I had them both with me. And I went to this chiropractor's office because I thought, you know, chiropractors can get me an x-ray, and it probably be a lot less hassle. And uh, I waited. For, I didn't have an appointment. I waited to see this guy for like 40 minutes. And uh, he finally calls me back and he says, okay, where do you hurt? And I said, well, at the top of my legs here. And he says, well, let me see. And I pull my pants down and uh, he says, well, you know, how did you get these, these puncture wounds? And I said, well, and I pull my pants back up and I said, sir, uh, doctor, in the middle of the night, um, I think that uh, aliens came and took an implant out of my leg. And he's like, okay. And he's got me by the elbow. And he's like, there's no charge for today. And he's walking me to the front door because he thinks I'm crazy. And I'm holding these images up in front of his face because I know chiropractors look at 100 x-rays a day. And he's, he saw this thing and he stopped in his tracks and he looks at both of them and says, come on into my office. So we went into his office. He shut the door. His phone's ringing. People are knocking at the door. And he says, Tell me, tell me how you got this. Give me the quick version. And I did. Um, and he said, okay. He says, uh, and he wrote me a script for an x-ray. He says, I'll pay for your x-ray, but I want, I want to see it. And he says, because I told him I was writing a book. And he says, but under the condition that you don't use my name or the name of my clinic. And I said, no, I probably promise I, I, I won't do that. So I've got the x-rays here. Um, dated, you know, uh, November 17, 2017. And sure enough, they took that thing out uh, that looked like a transistor, looked like an electrical device of some kind, that was gone. And I didn't see anything else. And I dropped the x-rays off at his office. And he called me and he says, well, did you see that they, uh, what they left you? And I said, no, I didn't see anything at all. And he says, well, swing by and get the x-rays and I want you to look at them. And he says, look right in the middle of your femur, lying parallel to your femur. There are two tiny wires 
that run parallel to one another. And they're about a half an inch long. And I'm like, hey, Doc, you know, if these things were so far evolved, why would they be so inept as to leave these wires in my body? And I love his answer. He says, you know, they don't make mistakes. He yeah. says, all they did was give you an upgrade. They took out their 1977 model and put in a 2017 model. And that's huh. what you have in your leg now. Very interesting. Wow. But that makes sense, you know? I mean, uh, yeah, we, th- we think of their, their own technology probably um, evolves faster than they can even imagine, just like we, uh, we think of ours. So, yeah, that's my gosh. That's yeah. something to think about right there. Yeah. So um, if, they, uh, if their technology evolves, you know, um, in I, how would I even say this? You know, we... In 50 years, we've changed so much. You know, in 50 minutes, they could change so much. Who knows? Something to think about. Exponentially, they change. They, they're 500 Exponentially. Up the evolutionary ladder from us. Yeah, <laughs> they are. To exponential evolution, just super fast. So <laughs> what's what's next for you? I mean, I, I, this book's amazing, and I want to finish reading that and then uh, move on to the next one. But, um, you know, what... What what are you thinking? Where do you want to be a year from now? You know what I'm doing? I, I uh, It's important to me to tell people about this. Um, and not because I want to sell books. I don't sure. need to sell to be honest with you. But I think what happened to me is important that people know. And they know that it's real. Um, and I kind of see that as a mission. And I, I like, I, you know, I go to every conference I can go to, you know, UFO Congress and Contact in the Desert and... You know, Eureka Springs, maybe in July, if it still goes, I doubt that it yeah, will. Yeah, I hope we got some of those coming up this summer. And uh, I go and I speak and I, and I tell the story and, uh, you know, people are amazed. And uh, a few people come up to me and said, oh, I don't believe you. And I'm like, well, you know, that's your right. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to... I'm not trying to persuade you. I'm just objectively telling you without embellishment what happened to me. And, you know, take from it what you will. You got a fantastic website with um, photographs and uh, what's really unique about your website. It's so complete. It has a, your um, biography and as well as your story. Um, tell everybody where they can find that because it's a great place to, to visit what you're about. Yes, it's easy. It's terrylovelace.com. T-E-R-R-Y-L-O-V-E-L-A-C-E. Terrylovelace.com. Uh, and I'm also on Facebook under Incident at Devil's Den, which is the uh, name of the book. So uh, hit me up on Facebook, Incident at Devil's Den, uh, or you can go to Terry Lovelace uh, if you can get the right one, and there's a link there that will take you over to the site. Um, and visit me there. Uh, you know, Shoot me an email. Uh, if you've got a question, you know, I'm, I'm happy to talk to you and answer, answer every and all questions. So yeah, it's a, it's a great website. Very well done, by the way. I, uh, I appreciate that when I look for information about somebody and, and find something like this, it's, it's very spectacular. And, and also remember, um, the book and, uh, incident at devil's den and, um, available on Amazon. Yes. Available. I have it as a book that has the photographs in the back and there's a Kindle version uh, and then I did a uh, I did an audio book where I read the book in my own 
voice. So I don't have a great radio voice, but I wanted it to be in my own words. So it's available as an audio book too. Yeah. Ultimately that's pretty powerful, especially a way to remember you, you know, um, to hear that voice. And, and, um, it gives, it gives people a, a better feeling about how, what it was like to be you at that time. And I think it's an amazing thing to experience and an amazing night as well. And I appreciate it so much. And, and Terry Lovelace, take good care of yourself. And, uh, you know, we're, sure. we're in for a long haul, but they think it's, uh, beneficial for us to uh, realize that there's more to us than, than we realize. And it's time to reach out. And, um, sir, I want to thank you very much. And thank you so much for your service. Well, thank you, Cam. I appreciate that. I'll drop by sometime. Come to Montana. You always, okay. you always have a friend in Montana. Good night, sir. I'll remember that. Good night. My Alien Life Podcast. You can find my website at www.myalienlifepodcast.com and please subscribe to my latest downloads at iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher and at podbean.com and please follow me and like me on Facebook and Twitter. My Alien Life is written and produced for broadcast at Studio 254 in the Northern Rocky Mountains. The music you are hearing is produced and created by Elion. You can find all Elion's work online at Heart Dance Records. Mm-hmm.